Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Well, good morning and welcome to Horizon West Church Online. Um, it is uh, good to be in front of you guys, and I, I pray that uh, we hear from the Lord today um, with some exciting things that, that God has in His Word for us. Um, I want to just say a quick word of thanks to Brian Richards. If you were streaming with us last week, you know that Brian uh, stepped in to preach our Father's Day message and did a fantastic job. So Brian, thank you for doing that, and thanks to all of you for streaming and being part of uh, this service this morning. Uh, what we're going to do today, I want to rewind and go back to March of this year. Um, I'm sure we all would want to do that, actually, but I want to talk to you about something that was going on in my life uh, right as the coronavirus was beginning to uh, become a factor in our daily lives, Um, and that is that I was uh, reading through the New Testament letters, and as I was reading these New Testament letters, some of which I had read 10, 15, 20, 30 times, um, I started to really see in them something that resonated in a new way. I was seeing these apostles writing to a church that was scattered and couldn't gather together, certainly not in large groups or in public spaces. Uh, Not only that, these believers were facing economic challenges. They were facing socio-political pressure. And more than anything, these first Christians were looking forward to the return of Jesus. And their hope was in that day. Their hope was in heaven. Especially poignant for me were two specific letters, both written by the Apostle Peter late in life, 1st and 2nd Peter. And what I want to do this morning is look at the first words of the second letter, 2nd Peter. Now the context for this letter, Peter is an older man, probably in his 60s or or late 50s by this time. And he's actually going to write this letter of 2nd Peter uh, just within about three years of his execution at the hands of the Roman Empire. What we'll see in just a moment is that Peter's tone is much different than we might expect from the one who was so impulsive and, and, and so hot-headed as, as a young man. Here we're going to see the words of a man who's older, who's wiser, and who has a word from the Lord that he wants to communicate to this scattered church living in an uncertain time. And so I'm going to go into Second Peter chapter 1 and read these first two verses. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now the first thing we're going to see in 2 Peter is that obviously it's a second letter, but this is not a sequel. Uh, This is not actually written to the same audience, at least that's what I believe. So in 2 Peter, we're going to see a different audience introduced. I, I can show you that by taking you to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. We're going to have it on the screen as well here. It says this. Sorry, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and he goes on. What Peter is doing is he's writing to a group of Jewish believers who are scattered around the world. This is a different audience than we're going to see in 2 Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, the tell is when he says to those who have received an equal standing with ours. 
what's Peter talking about? Well, what Peter is talking about is he's addressing Gentile or non-Jewish believers. And because of this, it's important for him to say, hey, Gentiles, hey, those of you who were not Jews before coming to faith in Jesus, you need to know that your faith is of equal standing with ours. It is just like ours. Paul said something similar, Ephesians chapter 2, and we will have that on the screen. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 17 to 18. Paul writes this, He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So if we take Peter's uh, faith of equal standing and we take Paul's access to the Father, what these guys are saying is what the early church came to the realization of. That God makes no distinction between ethnic groups. That God doesn't favor one against the other. That every person who puts their faith in Jesus has access to the Father and has a faith of equal standing with any other person regardless of who or what they were before coming to know Christ. Now, it's not that in the Old Testament the Gentiles were irreconcilably excluded. It's, it, we have examples, we have evidence of Gentile believers, non-Jewish believers, who became part of the Jewish community. However, what happened with the gospel, what changed, was that under the Old Covenant, in order to have access to God, one would have to become like a Jew, including if you were a man being circumcised and, and everyone abiding by the law, And secondly, even upon doing that, you would always kind of be this second-class citizen because you weren't really a Jew by birth. So that even if you adopted the faith of the Jewish people, you really didn't have equal standing. You really didn't have the same access. What we know and we believe as Christians is that there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. There is no group of people, there is no demographic that, that, that even after they're saved, they're somehow second class or they, they have to go to the back of the line. We believe that faith in Jesus alone, regardless of age, ethnicity, or language, faith is what gives us access. Let's go back to Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. What we're going to do with the remainder of our time is talk about what I'm going to say and and I'm going to use the expression truth intention. This is what Peter is going to be grappling with in this first chapter in Second Peter. Truth and tension. And the tensions are these. One, God has sufficiently provided us with everything that we need for life. And secondly, God has far more for us than we are presently experiencing. If that sounds like a paradox, give me a moment to show you how Peter is going to unpack these two truths that live in tension with each other. First, God has sufficiently provided us with everything we need. I believe one of the greatest lies of the enemy is to get us to believe that God is holding out on us or God is withholding something from us. See, if the enemy can get us to believe that, then what we're going to do is we're going to go looking for something outside of God, outside of God's plan, because we think that God isn't truly being good to us. Friends, this was the initial lie in the Garden of Eden. 
when Satan is bartering with Eve to try to get her to take the fruit. And she says, well, God told us that if we ate of the fruit, we would die. And Satan says, you won't really die. God knows that when you eat of it, you're going to become like him, knowing good and evil. In other words, Eve, God is holding out on you. There is more for you than what God himself has given you. This is an ancient lie, but it's one that we wrestle with even now in our day-to-day life. So Peter's going to say, listen, he's given you everything that you need for life and godliness, and it's through or by his own glory and excellence. If you're reading the ESV, the version that we have uh, had on the screens a moment ago, that's translated as, he has called us to his own glory and excellence. Now, this is um, a challenge of the Greek language. The word that's translated there as to in the ESV is a preposition. And in Greek, prepositions can mean a lot of different things. It's one of the hardest types of words to translate in the Greek. But I think the better translation would not be to his glory and goodness, but by his glory and goodness. In other words, God has called you to himself by or through his own glory and goodness. Let me translate it this way. God didn't call you to him because you are glorious or excellent. God called you to him because he is glorious and excellent. And Peter's going to say in verse 4, there's a few reasons why God did this. God had a purpose in mind when he called you. He did this so that you would A, receive God's promises, B, participate in God's nature, and and C, you would escape the destruction of sin. See, God is never done with you when he calls you to himself by faith. That's always just the beginning. He's called you to himself for a greater purpose. And trusting God's promises, growing in godly character, overcoming sin, these things don't happen automatically or by putting our our spiritual vehicle, if you will, in cruise control. See, it would be easy, it'd be nice if we just, you know, walked an aisle or prayed a prayer and then all of a sudden, We were these transformed individuals. Now, we do know that upon receiving Christ and and placing our faith in him, we are given the Holy Spirit. But then a work begins. Then a growth process is initiated. I would illustrate it this way. If if you're a tools kind of person, a builder, I'm not. uh, But all of us have probably been in the situation where we went to, uh, you know, get a a screw out or or remove a nail or, or put something together and we went, man, where, where's that tool that I need to do this specific job? And in some cases, we come to the realization that's not a tool that we have in the project halts. I think what Peter's going to say is, listen, everything that you need for this project of sanctification, this project of growing in understanding and growing in faith, everything that you need is already in your toolbox. God, by the Holy Spirit, has given you everything you need. What we need to do is we need to access the tools that we have in our toolbox in order to work with God in this project or in this prospect. Philippians 2 illustrates this so well for us. Again, this is the Apostle Paul, Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Paul, which is it? Are we to work work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Or is it God who works in us? The answer, obviously, is yes, both. 
We work out our salvation. We work with God. We access the tools in our toolbox. And yet it is God who is doing the work in us and through us to make us more like Jesus. This is what Peter is unpacking for us in the idea of God giving us everything that we need. And yet that there is more for us than we're presently experiencing. Go back to 2 Peter one more time. I want to read verses 5 through 9. Peter writes this, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So let's talk about this second part of what Peter is saying, that God has more for us than we're presently experiencing. Now, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to uh, tap into a hunch that I have that you probably know and feel that God has more for you than you're presently experiencing. You probably sense that, man, that there's something that's not quite clicking as it seems like it should. That There's some things that feel like they're stalling out. There's some places I feel like I'm stuck. And here's the good news. God doesn't ignore that or say, no, 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 that's not true. What he's going to say is that may be true, but if it is true then the goal, the thing that we need to do is to press into God because what we need, he has for us. So make every effort to supplement your faith. Now notice where the effort comes. Peter doesn't say, uh, make every effort to achieve faith or to arrive at a place of faith. He says to supplement, meaning the faith is already there. This is so important because what Peter is teaching us and what scripture affirms is that faith is a gift of God and faith comes first. The effort to grow in the knowledge of God, to grow in our faith is effort after faith, not before it. Philippians chapter two makes this so clear that it is a gift of God, not by works. So nobody can boast. Nobody can say, look how how hard I tried for this. Look how well I did to earn this faith. Peter says, no, you've got the faith as a gift of God, but now you need to supplement it with effort. Dallas Willard, a great theologian of the 20th and early 21st century, said grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. That's really important. Grace isn't opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Because there are some people who who seem to think that any discipline or any habit or any practice that would help them to grow in their faith, that they go, wait, wait, that sounds like legalism. No, no, no. Legalism is saying that we can earn our faith by certain disciplines or practices. We are not called to earn it, but we are called to effort. Not before, but after the faith arrives. And so what Peter will do in these next verses is is give us seven bricks, if you will, if we're thinking about like a building. These are seven foundational bricks that we need in this life of faith if we're going to achieve or grow into all that God has for us. Today, we're only going to look at four because I don't know about you, but I can't process seven things all at once. So we're going to look at four today. The first is this. Peter says, supplement your faith with virtue. Now, this could be seen as kind of the the catch-all, like, you know, just goodness or or being good. But the word in the Greek has a very specific meaning. It, It means excellence. What Peter's saying is, once faith comes, set out to be morally excellent, set out to to become the kind of person that is worthy of the faith that they've received, to pursue the highest degree of moral purity. 
Because the truth is that faith that does not begin to transform our thoughts, our attitudes, and our actions is not faith at all. That's why the brother of Jesus, James, in his New Testament letter says, faith without works is what? It's dead. Peter says, don't let your faith be dead. Don't stop at faith. Faith is not the finish line, but supplement it with virtue, with moral excellence. Second, add to your virtue knowledge. Now, I have a theory about this, and I'm going to unpack it a little bit. I believe that previous generations tended to overemphasize the role of knowledge in the Christian walk. It was almost as though the knowledge of God was equated to the, the strength of faith. The more somebody knows about God, the better Christian they are. And so in previous generations, uh, sermons tended to focus more on academic principles of Scripture rather than the application of it. Now, I know that's a generalization, but that seems to be the way that things were before. Not only that, but previous generations were big on things like Sunday school. Almost every church had a minister of education, at least if they were of a certain size. Because we believed that if we could get people to have a better understanding or knowledge of God, that's all they would need to be the kind of person God called them to be. But we've learned that that's not enough. That's why it's second on the list and not seventh. So if previous generations of Christians were guilty of overemphasizing the role, you probably know where I'm going. I feel that current generations of Christians are guilty of underemphasizing the role of knowledge in our faith. Because even though knowledge is not a measure of our faith, it is certainly an essential ingredient to it. In, in fact, roughly 40 verses in the New Testament either command or reference the role of the mind in the life of faith. Most famously, Jesus, when he said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Because the truth is, you can't fully love someone that you don't know. That's why when you were first getting to know your spouse, if you're married, uh, you, you probably, in one of those initial dates or those initial conversations, maybe it was even a phone conversation back in the days when you had to pay and get a card or, or pay for long distance phone calls, but you would spend long hours and you wanted to know their favorite color and you wanted to know their parents' names and how many siblings they had and what were their dreams for the future and what were their greatest fears. Because instinctively, we understand that to really love someone, we have to really know them. And here's what I would tell you if you want to know God better, read your Bible. Secondly, read your Bible. Third, read your Bible. Friends, we, we have bought into this lie or this idea that the knowledge of God is, is best found, best discovered somewhere out there in the world when God has put the revelation of himself in his word. The things that I know about God, I know because they were revealed in his word. God as a creator, God as a redeemer, God as a lover of people, a God who does not show favoritism, a God who is steadfast and gracious and compassionate, a God of life, a God of freedom. These things I know because scripture, God has revealed them uh, to us in scripture. So if you want to increase your knowledge of God, I would encourage you to increase your time in God's word. Spend time reading what God has revealed about himself. Number three, faith, and then Peter's going to say virtue, and then knowledge, and, and then it's going to come self-control, self-control. And here's why. Because scripture is not merely a document to be studied. See, that's, I think, what previous generations sometimes were guilty of. It's not just a document to be studied. 
Scripture is a weapon to be wielded. That's why Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And yes, I just quoted that in the New International Version, which is how I remembered it. So that, that's what that verse says. And what I have found is that in my own life, Scripture has become a weapon that I can wield against the enemy. Not against other people. We see that enough in our day and age now. Not, not, not using scripture to beat people up, but scripture as the sword of the spirit to fight the spiritual battle against the enemy, the devil. And this is the best way I know to do that is to hide God's word in your heart. And so when I was first walking with the Lord, when I was in high school and college and a young adult, I, I buried so much of the word of God into my heart, especially the New Testament. And I would just, when temptation would come, because remember, we're talking about self-control. I would just remember Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Or 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 20, Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Or 1 Peter 5.8, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same sufferings. And as these verses were memorized, they would come to light at times when I needed them most. And it was like in that moment of, of struggle, in that moment when I was in the fight, I had a weapon that I could wield to overcome. If you're struggling with sin, if you find yourself lacking in this characteristic that Peter talks about here, self-control, could it be that you've neglected to hide God's word in your heart? Now, again, this isn't the only answer, and I'm for anything that can help us to, to walk the walk of faith, including friendship and accountability and counseling and whatever it may be. But if we're overlooking this, this is the most basic weapon that we have in the Christian life, and it can help us to live lives of self-control. One of those verses that I memorized was Galatians 6, 9. Paul says, do not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. And this is going to lead us to the fourth of these characteristics that Peter talks about. And this is going to be the last one we deal with today. And the word here is steadfastness. Add to self-control steadfastness. Synonyms here might be uh, faithfulness or perseverance or maybe you like the, the good old-fashioned stick-to-itiveness. That's what Peter's saying. You're, you're going to need this quality in your life. You're going to need to build into your life this, this virtue or this characteristic of steadfastness. What I have found at 38 years old is that the further you go in your Christian walk, the more tempted you are to take it easy, to slow down, to chill out, to put it on cruise control. And Peter's going to say, don't do that. Don't do that. This isn't a steadfastness like just make it to the finish line. This is like a stay strong, stay in the fight, give it everything you've got. You may remember being a young Christian or maybe you've been around young Christians, new Christians, people who came to faith maybe as a teenager or as an adult and you were around them and, and, and what was true of them. They were probably so on fire for God and, and they were devouring scripture and they were sharing the good news with other people. And maybe you've experienced in your life or you've seen others where over time that wanes and that cools and, and we start talking about things like, well, now I'm, I'm more mature than I was then. 
But my hunch is that maybe we've actually replaced the fire of God for something far less, something God didn't intend for us, something more like apathy. That's why Paul says and Peter says, stay steadfast, stay in it. Don't become weary in doing good. No matter what your circumstances are, you can stand your ground. And guys, I don't know about a better time or more important time to hear these words than right now. Because it is a tough time to be steadfast. It is a difficult season to stand our ground. Between the things going on globally, things in our nation, the political environment, and then things in our own families, I'm getting texts and phone calls almost daily with people saying, pray for me because something has happened in my family, something's happening in my marriage, in my life, and I need prayer. We need steadfastness. And we can be steadfast and we can thrive in this difficult circumstance. Earlier this week, I went out to my back patio and uh, was checking on my flowers. My wife, Nikki, has a garden that she started and she takes great care of it. I'm responsible for one flower pot and I want to show you what that flower pot looks like currently. This is it. Um, And so you can tell I've been neglecting my watering duties. But I wonder what stands out to you about this picture. I'll tell you what stood out to me when I saw it. There's a little cluster of beautiful pink flowers right here at the bottom even though everything around it is dead and decaying. I love that picture because it's such a picture in in a lot of ways of the world that we live in right now. A world of conflict, a world of chaos, a world of division, a world of infighting and argument. And yet here is this flower. And friends, I want to say to you that in your circumstances, whatever they may be, you can thrive. If you will remain steadfast, if you will seek the Lord, you can thrive no matter what the circumstances are going on around you. This is why, again, going back to Galatians 6, 9, why Paul says we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. He doesn't say hopefully we'll reap one or or, it may be that we could or perchance there might be. He says, no, if you remain steadfast, if you refuse to give up, you will reap a harvest in God's time and in God's season. For me, the the best times of my life, the times when I was healthiest, the times when I was most thriving, were times when I lived with one moment in mind. Not, Not the next big event, not a graduation or marriage or the birth of a child, as important as all those things are. The best times in my life, the seasons where I most thrived, were seasons where I lived with one moment in mind, and it was the moment when I would stand before the Lord And hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. One of the things that the coronavirus has done for me, or that God has done through it, is to untether me from my love of this world. I think we all struggle with that, right? If we're being honest, we want to, you know, whatever that next thing is. If you're single, maybe it's getting married. If you're married, having a kid. If you've got a kid, that graduation, maybe becoming a grandparent, whatever that might be. But I found myself more and more saying, I think what the early church said often, which is the word Maranatha, and it means, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. I'm looking forward to the day when I will stand before the Lord, when he will wipe away every tear from my eye, and there will be no more death or sickness or sorrow, because the old order of things has gone and the new has come. Friends, we need to be steadfast, and and I want to close with two questions for us to, to wrestle through and then to apply in our lives going from here. Here's the first question that we're going to close with. 
How have I been tempted in the past week to believe that God was withholding something from me? If you just go into the recesses of your mind and, and think about that, what is it in my life, in my situation, in my family, in my job, in my spiritual walk, where I've been tempted to think, man, I, I just think God doesn't really want my good. I think God isn't really for me. There's something more than what God has for me. And would you get to the root of that and figure out what that is? And would you believe again that God has given you everything you need for life and for godliness? Here's the second question. Where do I need to demonstrate steadfastness in the week ahead? Again, you might substitute the word perseverance or faithfulness or stick to but where in your life does that virtue, that characteristic, desperately need to show up? Maybe it's in your parenting. And we've all had our kids home if we've got kids at home, and they've been there for months now since school let out early, and we're well into summer, and, and it can be long days, and we just need God to renew our steadfastness in parenting. Uh, maybe it's in our marriage and the, the circumstances and the season that we're in are trying and testing and, and, and creating tension and, and we need to remain steadfast there. Maybe it's in our job. Maybe it's in our finances. Maybe it's in our spiritual witness where we're tempted to just throw up our hands and say, God, I don't know how to do this anymore. And I want to encourage you to identify what that area is and would you this week focus on being a steadfast and unmovable person before the Lord. Well, friends, tonight is going to be an exciting night. Tonight, we have an opportunity for the first time in, I believe, it's 13 or 14 weeks uh, to gather together as a Horizon West Church family. Um, I, I, we realize and I know that some of you are not yet ready to, to get back into uh, in-person gatherings, and that is 100% okay. We, we don't want anyone to feel an obligation or a pressure or even to feel like somehow they're missing out if they don't come. Uh, but we also know that in the midst of all that's going on, some of you just need to get with each other. Some of you just need to see that friendly face. You need to, to experience worship in a room together, and we want to give you that opportunity. So tonight at 6.30, we're going to meet at Harvest Ministry. Uh, this is in Horizon West. We're going to put the, the location or the address in the comments there, and, and you can just Google map it and, and arrive there. But Come at 6.30 tonight if you feel inclined to do so. We're going to worship together. Uh, I'll share some devotional thoughts on the life of Peter. Um, and, and we'll also just spend some time praying together and asking God to continue to do a work in and among us. And so I want to encourage you to come out, uh, look in the comments for that address, and hopefully we'll see you tonight at 6.30. If you're not ready to come, that's okay. But would you pray for us tonight? And would you pray that God does a work in our midst as we gather? Uh, tonight. And so I want to close this morning by praying for you. Thank you again for watching us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, God, and just the reminder today of how important and essential the scripture is, God. Uh, Lord, I know that I would be nowhere without the revelation of who you are in your word, the, the tools that you've given us, the, 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 the weapons, the, 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 the verses and the words that just remind us of who you are and who you've called us to be. So God, would you renew our love and our commitment to your word. God, I pray for our world, Lord. We've got this virus that's still going around and in and, and, and many places, including our own, is, seems to be on the rise. And God, we just pray against it. In the name of Jesus, we pray against this virus that would seek to make people sick and, and seek to destroy lives. And God, we just come against it in Jesus' name. God, I pray for our church family, Lord. I pray that as we navigate these uncertain times, God, that we would keep our eyes fixed on you that we would not implode, that we would not become discouraged or despair, but rather that we would anchor ourselves in the only one that we can be certain of, which is Jesus. 
And would we, even through this difficult time, find ourselves being conformed even more into the image of him? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.